we can see the internet and cable provider oleg can someone say oligarchy or however you say that word it's like yeah, another oligarchy. way of, okay we can see the internet and cable oligarchy that is no, prevalent. Nope, nope 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 not oligarchy come on bro how do you say it oligarchy oligarchy yeah yeah or we can pull a sterling and just say it wrong and then we'll make fun of you no, I, I, I've said it wrong for like the past week because I've been referencing it and every time I say it I get fucking chomped on it. But I sorry if I'm sorry if I'm like just fucking with you more than often. I'm I'm I've been drinking again. No, you need to. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't drink for like two weeks and now I'm drinking again, so back on, on, on the back. bottle. Hell yeah, brother. Are you recording already, Ward? Yeah, I like as soon as uh, you joined the first time I hit record, just in case. Okay. So you got me cursing at my computer then? <laughs> I think maybe I was like a second too late. The more outtakes we get, the better. I love having that shit. That's just oh, like endlessly funny for me. That's probably the best part of when I'm editing is like taking those things out and popping them in the Discord channel and getting everybody's reactions. I love that shit. Yeah, it's fantastic. I feel you. It's like, come, the more you have, the better it is. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the last episode, I thought like my gross and even grosser just like totally went under the radar because no one reacted to it when I said it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, that was worthless. But then he no, caught it, it in the post. I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, last time when you were talking about the House of Lords, like Ward was just kind of like under his breath. He's like, gross. And then you like continued it on your description. He's like, even grosser. <laughs> even grosser. Grosser than a bishop, my god. Yeah. Or uh, what is the thing that, that they're talking about extracting from kids using blood libel? Um, adrenochrome? Adrenochrome, yeah. yeah. <laughs> adrenochrome. Fuck. Maybe it works just as well to not even have like a whole separate episode where we talk about current events because we seem to be working them in. Even when we're talking about Thatcher, we end up talking about like Trump and his lack of response to COVID or whatever like we did last week. But there's so much going on, like Trump asking Michael Flynn if he should implement martial law to have the election redone this past week. Like just the fact that that was a real fucking conversation and people had to tell him like, no, it's probably not a good idea. Like it blows my fucking mind. dude. It is endlessly hilarious. My favorite little piece or nugget out of the news cycle recently is Biden meeting with the NAACP and basically, yeah. you know, I'm not going to fucking help you, man. Look at me. Look at me. I'm the best <laughs> white boy. He literally fucking uh, said I'm a goddamn white boy, dude. Honestly, the one I've been dubbing on lately, current events wise, is I don't know if you all remember Juan Guaido, the guy that they tried to put in charge of Venezuela. Yeah. So Biden is like cutting ties with him and he's like trying to open talks with Marduro again. And Juan Guaido is just kind of like, guys, I can't go anywhere. Nobody wants me. Help. (laughs) Good. Good. I think it was like the day that the elections were held and uh, Moss just won handedly. And I think it was him that was on camera, like just crying his eyes out. It was the funniest shit, dude. It's it's amazing. I was just going to say, what's the name of this fucking website, dude? Eaglefuckertruthteller.com or some shit? I don't know. Goddamn. What the fuck is that? What, the thing that I just posted in the group chat? Yeah, dude. That's a screenshot from the Donald.win. So when the Donald subreddit got banned, they all flocked to their backup, which is the Donald.win. And that is a screenshot that someone archived. And that is apparently their new thing. They were talking about January 6th. They're all going to storm D.C. And just the comments on this, like, bring guns. It's now or never. You know, might as well erase the Second Amendment if we aren't willing to stand up now. It's fucking crazy. Like, I, again, I don't have any inclination that they're going to do anything serious. Like, there will probably be some, like, you know, one-off events. Somebody's going to shoot somebody here or there. But the idea that they think that they're going to have some kind of 1776 redux, it's hilarious. Serious, dude? How's, that, how's that funny? 
Seriously, you don't think we have a plan? You don't think the Trump <laughs> has already bestowed upon us the guidance necessary to overtake the swamp? You're fucking kidding me. Can we just talk about this face-to-face, like Donald Trump looking at an eagle graphic that they have at the top? Oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> this, oh, it's, it's funny. Two patriots. They're trying to be serious, but it just looks like a parody. I thought it was in this comment section. Basically, they just said, whoever the military sides with is going to win. And I'm like, in what world do you think that that's going to happen? Like, in what world do you think you guys are going to storm D.C. with a bunch of AR-15s and the military is going to go against the state and side with all these guys with Gadsden flags or whatever? Like, even if they really do hold that ideology, which I wouldn't doubt, like, I wouldn't doubt that most military guys, despite that being incredibly ironic, consider themselves libertarians and say that they want small government, despite being the pit bulls of the government itself, the idea that they would just be traitors. It's hilarious. I think it's somewhat important to say here that like the root of what this drives from is not a bad thing, in my opinion. Being willing to die for what you believe in at all costs and preserve that, that's not a bad thing. But it's, oh, yeah. it's like what you're going to die for. You're going to die for an inflated fucking fat boy billionaire who doesn't give a fuck about you and will go and eat Taco Bell Crunchwrap Supremes on his private fucking jet. Like, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? I mean, I, I will do bum some Taco Bell. I'm not going to lie. Oh, I'm not hating on Taco Bell here. <laughs> In no world I ever want to feel what Trump feels like. I can just only imagine what that motherfucking conglomerate of just, it's just nasty. I imagine that that gathering's going to be like fucking 200 people. And I, like I found this headline today. Listen, this is about a, a Trump rally recently. Some in the crowd were seen holding pro-police Blue Lives Matter flags, but many protesters quickly became hostile towards law enforcement who were preventing them from making their way further into the building, saying, fuck you, you fucking pieces of shit. One person shouted while ramming a door with a flagpole. Stand down, someone else shouted. My family fought and bled for our freedoms. Basically, in Oregon, these Blue Lives Matter guys are starting to fight the cops. And I got to tell you, that just brings me such joy. It's great, dude. I love you. love to see it. <laughs> I'm not even involved. This is the best thing I could hope for. <laughs> I mean, that is the biggest contradiction of it. You're right. Like, it is a good thing to stand up for. Like, if you are willing to take up arms against a tyrannical government, like, I can understand why these guys believe in that. And that is a good core ideology to have. The problem is that that's been completely subverted. And they are standing up for the guy who is literally trying to have a military coup, which is like the definition of tyranny. Like, if you think that we even have some kind of semblance of democracy, it would be, I guess, the election that took place where Biden won, you know, as much as you can win an election in America, he won. And so the tyranny that you should be standing up against would be Trump trying to overturn the election with a military coup. And the irony just doesn't seem to ever occur to them. But that's, again, just going back to the postmodern conservatism. And I also don't think that that's an accident. Like, I think that the government has intentionally taken these guys who are probably the only like large armed movement in the country, what you would consider the stereotypes of these rednecks who have tons of guns and all have the confederate flags or the gadsden flags and everything that don't tread on me flag they just literally don't see the irony of being involved in what is now like the QAnon, which to me again just seems like a big psyop to get these guys to worship the military because they think that there's certain parts of the military that are against the rest of the military meaning the deep state so it's like it seems to me like it was all run by the cia to begin with i don't know no, I totally agree. I mean, it seems it seems divisive as all hell. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that that's the point. But the crazy thing about like right wing conspiracy theories is like they'll say like shit like, OK, well, there's different factions of power in government working against each other. And I'm like, good, good. You got that part. Mm-hmm. And, and then it turns into like and some of them are, are raping kids. And I'm like, well, maybe. OK, where are you going with this? And then I've said it before, having studied Judaism and been a Jew myself in 
earlier times in my life. That's always the the end component is that it ends with the Jews. And that's exactly what QAnon is. All the blood libel shit, all the adrenochrome shit. It's pulled straight out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. And that's uh, unilaterally where it ends up is white supremacy. But it just sucks because like they get that first part right where there's like warring factions and stuff like the CIA doesn't work at the behest of anyone except the CIA. And I'm like, good, that's true. And then they just take it a totally different fucking direction. Mm hmm. I mean, I think the move on our part, or just generally on the left's part, I mean, is to get them to see the 1917 revolution for what it was. Get them to understand that that was the real version of the 1776 revolution. Because even like the revolution in America was really just done by the wealthy people because they didn't want to pay taxes on these massive lands that they owned. You should have seen my face when I had a history class in college and uh, the professor, he told us Pennsylvania, it translates in Dutch to Penn's Woods. Like William Penn owned all that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like the amount of area that that is alone, like I can understand why he probably didn't want to pay any kind of taxes on that. <laughs> so again, when you read like Howard Zinn's book and he talks about the American Revolution and the myth of what people think it was, thinking it was just all these people spontaneously rising up against the tyranny of the English king or whatever. When in reality, it was just like the wars we have today, where it was a bunch of rich guys getting all the poor farmers to fight for their interests against their yeah. own, because a lot of the poor farmers actually were better off under loyalist rule. But if you could just somehow subvert all the Cold War propaganda and get them to understand that the 1917 revolution in Russia was exactly what they think the 1776 revolution was, that would go a long way. I mean, it could really turn these people leftists, which would be fucking fantastic. But I don't think that you can really do it saying what it actually is. Like, again, I always come back to this thing where we got to like change up the terms. Like you have to like disguise all the language because as soon as you start saying proletarian or communist or bringing up Russia, even they're all just going to like shut their ears to it, you know? Right, dude. I mean, a lot of people sleep on re-education camps, like you were saying, but I think like, you know, if we just disguise as a charter school, they might buy in, you know, you just (laughs) you're going here to learn some new trade. You're a plumber. Yeah, sure. But you want to be an electrician. But like along the way, you get taught about the 1917 revolution or some shit. I think that's a great idea. (laughs) Well, there's the cool parts of this too, where, you know, you're talking about the origin myth of the United States and I'm not getting off topic with Thatcher here because there's a tie to be made specifically with like the proclamation of uh, 1768 and the troubles and the people who were involved in the troubles and the geography of England and where the people who came to America initially came from, which hopefully I can tie that in a little later on in this episode. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, We can get into it then if you guys want to. Let's piss on Margaret Thatcher's grave once again. Hell yeah, buddy. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, and I'm here again with Cosper, Ward, and Jaron. Unfortunately, the funny guy is not with us this week. Sterling is still traveling, but uh, we will see if we can do our best without him. All right, so we're continuing with our uh, episode series on Thatcher, and hopefully we're wrapping up. This will end our series on Reagan and Thatcher. So let's just uh, get right into it. We'll start with just Thatcherism as a concept. And I found this from just a Wikipedia page on Thatcherism. So Thatcherism is associated with the economic theory of monetarism, notably put forward by Friedrich Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty, which Thatcher had banged on the table while saying, quote, this is what we believe. In contrast to previous government policy, monetarism placed a priority on controlling inflation over controlling unemployment. And in 1988, she caused controversy when she made the remarks, quote, 
You do not blame society. Society is not anyone. You are personally responsible. And quote, don't blame society. That's no one. And her comments were met with outrage, even by other conservatives who adhered to the philosophy that a society was built on both individual and collective responsibility. Thatcher told the party conference that her third term was to be about, quote, social affairs. So this goes back to our larger message, I think, about neoliberalism. Thatcher really puts it well when she says that society is no one. And that's probably one of her lasting quotes that I think a lot of people associate with her is that there is no such thing as society. It's just individuals and families, I think is how I've usually heard it put. And that goes right back to blaming systemic problems on individuals. You know, if you're unemployed, it's not that this woman got into power and instituted a whole bunch of policies that made thousands or millions of people unemployed that totally would have been avoidable if she hadn't been such a hardcore ideologist when it comes to monetary policy. But you just have to blame yourself. It's because you didn't work hard enough. It's because you didn't get the right degree. And that's exactly what we're still seeing today. Probably her biggest legacy. And along with Reagan, it's that same kind of thing, like blame the welfare queens. Don't blame the societal conditions that cause them. Well, for Thatcher specifically, it was blame the single mothers. Yes. You know, these yep. are the, the burdens that are at lay here. But I think the interesting take here is how Thatcher is really just the fucking like counter argument to the Joker. You know, we live in a society, no, the fuck we don't or some mm-hmm. bullshit. It harkens to this persistent conservative idea of like anonymity. I mean, you can even see it in like Ann Rand's work with John Galt. This, this sort of faceless other or redacting responsibility of society because of the scale of it or the implications of it. It's a way to pass off blame from structural problems to individual people. To add to that, I think that the faceless other, what they mean by that is the faceless other then becomes the free invisible hand of the marketplace or some shit like that. You know, okay, it's not society. It's actually the collective of individuals making these choices that perpetuate it. And it's like you're so fucking close noticing that, yeah, it is a collection of individuals always that make up a society, but it's not this fucking invisible hand. You can do more than that. What the fuck? It is funny like to recognize that we do have this collective of individuals and then you just try really hard to not call that a society because that invalidates all of your previous ideology. Right. And not only that, it's like, you know, fuck structural changes. Why doesn't everybody just do better themselves? You know, mm-hmm. if we all if we just got the right people doing the right things, we would be better. It's just hilarious. Well, that goes back to what I was saying in our first episode when we had our libertarian friend on and he was talking about, I forget why we even brought it up, but we were just talking about markets in general. That's kind of the crux of like the argument that I get to when I talk to right wingers. They say that it really is just the fault of individual people and everybody should just work harder. People should just be trying to better themselves and going to school and getting all the right jobs or whatever. And all I can say is like, even if everyone did that, if you got everyone to open up a business, if you got everyone to go back to school and get all the right degrees and really just bust their ass, then all that does is raise the floor. Now that's just expected of everyone and it is worth nothing because everyone is doing it. Not only that, it works off of the pre-assumption that the political power and also informational power, production power is all evenly distributed and that there's no disadvantages prevalent to everyone who participates within the system. You know, and that's what we're going to get at that later when I go over neoliberalism as a theory, but like, okay, go fucking compete against Google then. You obviously, yeah. you know, you're, you can work hard enough. They don't have any fucking advantages. Well, I mean, they do acknowledge, they acknowledge that people are disadvantaged and start off at different places, but they just think that you can overcome that through hard work. It's exactly what right-wingers do. They ignore those kind of things when it's convenient. Like they ignore externalities, they ignore disadvantages and societal conditions when it's convenient. But then when it affects them, then it's a real problem. Like when Twitter is shadow banning them or just banning them entirely because they said the N-word, well, then it's a real problem. And they acknowledge that they can't get the same kind of reach with their own platform that they started up. Yeah, dude, it's like fucking playing Dark Souls with three fingers, just get good. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into uh, Thatcher and religion. That's what I have next here. 
So Thatcher was raised and remained a devout Methodist. She married an Anglican, however, and at times was required to find a middle ground. Like a true diplomat, Thatcher was able to bridge the gap between these two religions and in the end seems to have claimed both. Quote, economics is the method. The object is to change the soul, Thatcher once declared, revealing that the way she conceived her free market ideology was as much about transforming values as about improving Britain's ailing GDP. In sourcing the origins of her free market ideology, it is not in the pages of Friedrich von Hayek's Road to Serfdom or Milton Friedman's Monetarist Theory where we find the answer, but in the sermon notes of her father, Alf Roberts. Contained within his sermons, one finds the theological basis of what would later become the cornerstones of Thatcherism, an individualistic interpretation of the Bible, a nod to the spiritual dangers of avarice, praise of the Protestant work ethic, virtues of thrift and self-reliance, and finally, a divine justification for individual liberty and the free market. In short, Thatcherism always owed more to Methodism than to monetarism. Thatcher herself was a preacher before she formally entered politics while a student at Oxford University. Even though she later transferred this missionary energy from the pulpit to the podium, her religious beliefs remained an underlying core. Indeed, on becoming leader of the Conservative Party in 1975, Thatcher, much like Ronald Reagan, saw it as her chief mission to completely undermine the moral credibility of socialism and communism and reconnect the broken link between Protestant and capitalist values in Britain. I think one thing to consider moving forward, too, as, as we're talking about the troubles and things that are soon to come, is just the political and religious landscape of England in general. So for anyone who is unfamiliar with it, King Henry VIII separated from the Catholic Church and therefore the European main continent by doing so and founded the Church of England, where he himself took upon the role of the emissary of God instead of being brokered through the Catholics. So that's kind of what led towards a lot of the Irish and English butting of heads further along in the future. And there were also some implications that are regarded as pretty prominent in the founding of America as well. But it's definitely notable, I think, that Thatcher took on Anglicanism because that is what the Church of England became. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this really is interesting to go into like her religion and how that influenced her policy. Because like we've said before, the way that people treat capitalism and this individualist rhetoric it really is like a religion where you just believe it. And regardless of how it actually is giving you any returns or, you know, providing any societal returns or really improving conditions for everyone, you still believe in the policy. You just trust the process, whether it's working or not. And you just keep believing it, even if it leads you to ruin, even if it causes, you know, global climate change and just makes the planet uninhabitable for humanity. You just have to keep going with it. Absolutely. It removes tangible cause and effect from your decision making by believing in something due to faith, even though it seems to an extent separate from politics, it can permanently change and alter the way that people perceive their society, perceive their representatives, perceive their political landscape, because they do not understand the visceral and literal implications of what policies can do, what geopolitics can do, and so on. Yeah, and I think it is interesting to see it laid out that way. It really is like she was trying to take the Protestant work ethic that was brought over to America and made this country what it is and tried to bring that to England. Right, so I'll talk about the poll tax. Uh, so the poll tax was a 1989 change to local council tax rates. Again, councils are what they call public housing in the UK. So the poll tax swapped taxation on a property's rental value for taxation on the number of adults living there. The details of it don't really matter, but what matters is that the tax generally drove down taxes for the rich while hiking them up for everyone else. As George H.W. Bush could tell you, new taxes are a pretty guaranteed way to get your voters to turn on you. In Thatcher's case, they didn't just turn on her, they rioted. There were ominous rumblings even in the planning stages. Cabinet memos exist from the year before the tax was rolled out, advising that resistance was growing. Yet Thatcher not only plowed on, she publicly owned the policy. She forced it onto Scotland first in 1989, triggering mass civil disobedience. But rather than be deterred, she then imposed a new tax on England and Wales the following year. The results spoke for themselves. In London, a mass protest evolved into the largest riot the capital had seen in 100 years. 
across the country, people refused to pay. The tax was so destabilizing that Thatcher was begged to withdraw it, but she was too stubborn, so her party instead deposed her in a leadership contest, ending her premiership. The hated tax wasn't ended until John Major became prime minister in 1991. Is, is that a, a flat rate for every citizen? Yeah, that's basically what it is. It's like a regressive tax because yeah, like a progressive is, tax would tax people who make more more money and tax people who make less, less money. This was just sort of a flat tax that changed it from the value of your house to how many people you had living there. Interesting. Basically just the wet dream of all fucking neoliberals Yeah, uh, in the yeah. attempt to restore economic power to the elites already. Yeah, I can definitely see why that stirred such a reaction from British people as a whole. Because, I mean, the, the problem with flat taxes, assuming the price of a needed commodity like bread stays more or less the same, a flat tax on somebody like Jeff Bezos is not going to have the same implication as a tax on somebody like me. That makes yeah. buying a, a loaf of bread significantly more detrimental to me than it would to someone like Bezos. Whereas, you know, if he lost 20% of his income, he's still doing beyond fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last time I heard a flat tax seriously floated in America was Herman Cain. And I think that was the 2012 campaign. And he had his 999 plan. And idiots on the right thought it sounds like a great idea. It sounds like equality until you realize that equality in that sense doesn't actually work. The example I always bring up is conservatives who think that that kind of equality, like equality of opportunity. I asked them, how does the NFL draft work? Like they usually like football. So like, how does he think it works if we just have no preference when it comes to the NFL draft and we don't let the worst team get first pick at the best players the next season? How long do you think before one team just keeps dominating year after year after year? The first thing yeah. I got to say is last time I heard about Herman Cain, that motherfucker was saying COVID was fake. Uh, you see how that happened. <laughs> uh, second, second of all, this is a huge appeal to like that false. This is like what neoliberalism is like disguised in really. It's this attempt of, you know, equality and the power of the individual that they try to sell it. Because if they actually, if people knew what these fucking things meant, really, no one would fucking buy it. No one would yeah. want to buy it. Like you're saying. But it has to be disguised in a cloak of, okay, this is actually going to help you and make it individual freedoms and all this blah, blah, bullshit that they peddle. Yeah, spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't remember, Herman Cain died of COVID. (laughs) Insert the Larry David theme there. (laughs) What do you mean? He's still fucking tweeting. He's still tweeting about COVID. (laughs) Fucking the body may die, but the soul lives on, brother. Yeah, that's the other headline I keep seeing is everybody's really mad at this. What's her name? Joni something. This prominent politician who was saying that doctors were lying about COVID numbers so they could make more money. And she was like first in line to get the vaccine. Did you see him put Bernie down? (laughs) Oh, poor guy. (laughs) Put my dog to sleep. All right. So now let's get into the recession. The poll tax sort of relates to it, but the recession, I think, is a much bigger issue for Thatcher. So Thatcher was responsible for two recessions that were driven by ideology and deliberate policies. Although inflation needed controlling in 1980, the government deflated the economy too much, chasing money supply targets which were unreliable. The cost was poverty, suffering, unemployment, and social disorder, which was avoidable. The levels of unemployment that occurred in the 80s had not been seen since the Great Depression. So up until Thatcher took over in 1979, unemployment had actually been falling for two years. Inflation had been brought to under 10%. Industrial output was finally ticking up, as were living standards. The middle of the 70s had been disastrous. The labor government of James Callahan had to grovel to the International Monetary Fund for a bailout. But by the end of the decade, the economic indicators were improving. Plus, oil from the North Sea was about to provide a bonanza. But even though the economics looked more favorable, the political and social environment in Britain was very volatile. Many people were fed up and looking for decisive leadership. And so Thatcher was elected. Unfortunately, she came into power wedded to what Labor Chancellor Dennis Healy described as, quote, voodoo economics. Pursuing a monetarist economic policy turned a global recession into a British depression. Unemployment skyrocketed from 1979 to 1981 from about a million to three million. And that was the official statistics. 
Those stats were constantly revised in the 80s to massage them downwards. The area that hit hardest were in Northern Ireland, where one in five people were out of work in the early 1980s, along with industrial areas of Northern England and Scotland. Big rises in interest rates, indirect taxation or value-added tax, the exchange rate and cuts in public spending depressed demand and accelerated factory closures and bankruptcies. Every evening, the TV broadcast news would announce thousands of job cuts and names of firms now facing closure. These included household name brands and affected all sectors. So again, we're just getting right back to her stubbornness and her ability to stick to this ideology even when it's not working. And I can't help but tie that to religion. It really is just like being in a cult. You keep trying the same thing over and over again, even though you're, it's not working for you. Yeah. You know, you can even see that with Donald Trump when COVID hit the United States. The only thing he could say is it's going to disappear. It's just going to go away like magic. You'll see. And it's just this sort of like affirmative mentality that doesn't actually address real problems. And I think that is rooted in religion. And definitely with Thatcher in mind, too, You know, we have a conservative politician who is obsessed with the rate of inflation that has been going on throughout the 1970s, and they want to address that. But one of my problems with conservative talking points on inflation is, don't get me wrong, we need to be careful of hyperinflation of our money. But at the same time, there are other ways to deal with that. And inflation is not necessarily a bad thing as long as there are price controls on commodities so that people can afford them. They don't have to take a wheelbarrow full of money to get a loaf of bread like they did in the Weimar Republic, Mm -hmm. uh, which the government could easily do if private influence weren't a thing. But also at the same time, and this is something Thatcher did not do, is inflation by itself is not the bad uh, thing that that conservatives make it out to be. Because the real question is, how secure is your debt when a country goes into debt to itself, you can sell that to another country. Case in point, China owns a shitload of U.S. debt. Why? They wouldn't buy it if it were a bad investment. They buy it because they know that the U.S. is good for it. We have the largest consumer economy in the world. And that harkens not only to Thatcher, but it also harkens to like, why the fuck can't we have a better stimulus? Why the fuck can't we give Americans more money? Inflation isn't a problem. It's the gears of the economy surrounding inflation that become the problem. Yeah, $600 is a flick to the balls. Yeah, yeah, it really is just like a a fuck you right to your face. Yeah, well, and the Republican talking point about like, say, giving every American, I don't know, 100K or whatever, whatever amount is, well, what about the national debt? That's always the conservative talking point, even with Thatcher talking about inflation. And that is just such a myopic and narrow view of economics. It's honestly, it's just fucking lazy. Yeah, that's actually a good way to describe it, like myopic. Because when I was reading about Thatcher and her monetary policy, that's what they kept harping back on is just her focus on inflation. It was just so dogmatic. And the idea that it is only caused by monetary supply. And that was the biggest thing. Like there was no other factor that they were really taking into account other than just the amount of money in the market. There's obviously other factors that go into inflation and other things that you have to take into account. You know, the national debt, like you said, doesn't really matter as long as you continue to pay that debt as a country. And as long as your country is functioning, just like as long as your household is functioning, as long as your business is functioning, as long as you keep paying the bills, it doesn't really matter so much if you rack up more as long as you can keep up with the late fees or the interest or whatever it is. So even when they make that kind of comparison to a household budget, they are always leaving that part out, which I don't think is unintentional. I mean, that sounds nice and all, brother, but similar to communism, really all inflation is just when the government does too much shit. (laughs) We're just going to be real about it. I don't know. I mean, I think, like, as far as I understand it, through all the political writings that I've read, like the best definition of Marxism that I can give is just probably just gay butt stuff. Honestly, you could write a book, just write that down. Don't forget being poor. That is what communism is. You're poor and gay. Lazy. Right. Uh, Similar to a raccoon that has just crawled out of a trash can. (laughs) 
stinky, wearing cat ears. The list goes on. Yeah. And you all live in the same house. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into uh, some more stuff here. Do you guys want to get into her and Pinochet now? Hell yeah. All right. So I don't have a whole lot about her and Pinochet. I got just a couple paragraphs here. So apparently Thatcher was pretty cool with Pinochet. She seemed to like the guy a lot from what I can tell. Thatcher sent Pinochet the finest scotch during the former dictator's UK house arrest. She said, quote, scotch is one British institution that will never let you down, which British. was the note. Well, you know, Scotland's, uh, you know, part of Britain, right? Yeah, yeah it, is. A, it is now, not buddy. Anybody off to say that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was the note that she accompanied with the scotch. So this detail revealed in the third volume of Charles Moore's biography of Thatcher adds further color to the close relationship between Thatcher and Pinochet. Thatcher was appalled that the Labour government had allowed the arrest of Pinochet while he was in London for medical treatment, overriding his diplomatic immunity. So, yeah, this happened later in Pinochet's life. This is, you know, after they are both out of power. He came to England for some kind of medical treatment and then was apparently under house arrest because he was a fucking war criminal. So before news cameras, the by then retired prime minister firmly told the ex-Chilean dictator, quote, it was you who brought democracy to Chile. And that's a definition of the word democracy that apparently involves overthrowing the elected government in a coup, ruling as a military strongman for 18 years and murdering over 3000 dissidents while torturing 40,000 more. That sounds like the common use of democracy. Actually, yeah, in practice, yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. Just to add to that too, the the whole thing with Pinochet, first off, that was the original 9-11, quite literally. It, it happened on 9-11 when they installed yeah, this guy. Allende. Yeah, and for uh, Allende, he was a proclaimed Marxist in one election in Chile. But also at the same time, as if this were not obvious enough, the U.S. representative from Chile to Washington was actually assassinated in the United States, the guy that worked for Allende after Pinochet took power. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They killed him here in this country. Jesus. Yeah. And so for anybody who's not familiar with Pinochet, this is the guy, like if you are a leftist online and you're arguing with any right wingers, that is when they will bring up the commies get free helicopter rides because they're so unoriginal. That is a common meme among them. And Hmm. that's basically what he did. You know, Pinochet tortured and killed thousands of people, usually communists, trade unionists, you know, labor organizers of every kind. And one of the common tactics was to literally just take them in a helicopter and drop them out of it. So that's where that comes from, for anybody who's not familiar. I mean, fuck, I thought Kobe was a pretty good basketball player. I don't see the reason for that. (laughs) Too soon, man. (laughs) Shit. So to go on, as the New Yorker details, Britain had previously suspended arms sales to Chile following the 1973 coup, which saw thousands arrested and herded into makeshift torture centers. The moment Thatcher came to power, she restarted the arms sales apparently more impressed with Pinochet's anti-communist credentials than his wanton murder of civilians. Although they never met in power, Thatcher was impressed by the success of Chile's neoliberal economic program and Pinochet's bloody stance against communism in Latin America. Quote, I don't know when or how this tragedy will end, Thatcher told the 1990 Conservative Party conference to warm applause, but we will fight on for as long as it takes to see Senator Pinochet return safely to his own country. The British people still believe in loyalty to their friends. Now, the official line from Thatcher supporters is that she felt a, quote, great debt for Pinochet's secret actions during the Falklands War. This is, again, according to Charles Moore's biography of her. But since that war took place years after arms sales were restarted, it seems more likely that Thatcher just enjoyed hanging out with a bloodstained tyrant. And so apparently he did something behind the scenes through some back channels to help out England during the Falklands War. Uh, so this is a quote from someone in Chile. For a British authority figure to publicly support the most bloody dictator in Latin America violated the memory of thousands of Chileans who were killed, imprisoned, and tortured under the dictatorship. Her words were an offense to the Chilean people, said Alicia Lira, the president of the Association for Relatives of the Executed. It's not really a shock to see her being friendly with a out-and-out fascist like Pinochet. Because at the end of the day, anti-communism just is fascism. 
Yeah, and it's it's also worth noting that there's a, a very key player happening in all of this in Chile, uh, as well as, as Cuba at the time, Turkey, East Timor, Western Sahara, Vietnam War, Bangladesh, Europe, Israel, and that would be Henry Kissinger, who mm-hmm. I think is for some fucking reason still alive. He must have Dick Cheney's doctor. <laughs> You know, that guy was just the bane of the world's existence since he took power in Washington. And he was directly related to the CIA coup and making it a priority, especially after Chile um, under Allende started working with Cuba. I believe Castro actually went to visit him at, at one point or another. So there, there were very significant trends in Marxism and leftist politics in not just, you know, the Caribbean Sea, but also in South America. And of course, Washington took that very seriously. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's all up and down this book that I just read to go over this topic. David Harvey's book on neoliberalism has fucking Kissinger all up and down the motherfucking pages. I a guy who's, believe that. Yeah. Yeah. His reach isn't limited to the country. Like most neoliberal and economic elites, the thing that we fail to receive is that, yes, they're nationalistic in tendency, but their effect is international indefinitely. I look forward to the amount of crab raving that is going to happen when Kissinger finally does die, because he is by far one of the worst figures. And it seems to be only people on the left who even know about the extent of his atrocities. But yeah, that's going to be a big one. Yeah, he was very much directly involved in the entire Chile affair. And I think that it would be remiss to think that I have no proof of him and Thatcher ever meeting, but I'm quite certain that they did at some point and probably absolutely loved each other. Yeah, they seem like they would be best buds. I mean, it's kind of like the bullshit bully ass high school quarterback meeting the most disgusting high school cheerleader. Why, why wouldn't they be friends? <laughs> now I'm going to put the picture in your head of a Chad Kissinger and a Stacey Thatcher. Up. <laughs> I'm not sorry. All right, let's get into the troubles. This is going to be a, a longer topic. And just to preface it, there is going to be so much that we are going to leave out of this because the troubles itself could be a multi-part series. Like there is a lot that goes on there. So this is going to be a very brief overview Again, because we're just talking about Thatcher. Just to uh, give a brief description of the Troubles, this is from Wikipedia. The Troubles was an ethno-nationalist conflict in Northern Ireland during the late 20th century. The conflict began in the late 1960s and is usually deemed to have ended with the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Although the Troubles mostly took place in Northern Ireland, at times the violence spilled over into the parts of the Republic of Ireland, England, and mainland Europe. The conflict was primarily political and nationalistic, fueled by historical events. It also had an ethnic or sectarian dimension, but despite the use of the terms Protestant and Catholic to refer to the two sides, it was not a religious conflict. Key issue was the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. Unionists, who were mostly Ulster Protestants, wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom. Irish nationalists, who were mostly Irish Catholics, wanted Northern Ireland to leave the United Kingdom and join a united Ireland. Hell yeah. Yep. The term Ulster here is very important. One of the things that comes to mind with Ulster is the people who lived there way, way earlier in history. It was kind of a refugee camp of all of these different places that England had conquered, and they just kind of sent them to Ulster. So we're talking about Scottish people, Irish people that had land, they had trades, they had their own internal economies. And when England came in and took them over, a lot of them got displaced into what was essentially a refugee camp in Ulster, where they didn't have these things that they had done generationally. Interestingly enough, those who wanted to leave Ulster were told to come to the New World and America and told that they could have land again if they were to come here and and essentially trailblaze for the nobility. And they ended up becoming the foot soldiers in the Revolutionary War. So there's this line of oppression that came from the crown to Ulster that is still continuing in what we're talking about in the Troubles. 
so the main participants in the troubles were Republican paramilitaries such as the Provisional Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA, and the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA. Loyalist paramilitaries, such as the Ulster Volunteer Force, or the UVF, and the Ulster Defense Association, UDA, British State Security Forces, the British Army, and Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, and political activists and politicians. So a lot of different forces going on here. Security forces of the Republic of Ireland played a smaller role. Republican paramilitaries carried out a guerrilla campaign against British security forces, as well as a bombing campaign against infrastructural, commercial, and political targets. Loyalists targeted Republicans and nationalists and attacked the wider Catholic community in what they described as retaliation. The troubles also involved numerous riots, mass protests, and acts of civil disobedience, and led to increased segregation and creation of temporary no-go zones. So I will admit, like before this, most of my familiarity with the IRA or with the Troubles was basically just in meme form. And you see a lot of memes about car bombs, memes about 26 plus 6 equals 1, uh, Tilk Fai Darla. And basically what it comes down to is that the IRA is a socialist organization. And while it is nationalist, which is kind of weird for leftists to have any kind of truck with, they basically just wanted a united Ireland and they wanted it under socialist principle. And so they were fighting for their independence from England. The nationalism only makes sense if we look at it through the lens of them perceiving themselves as an occupied territory, I would think. Yeah, it's more like anti-colonialism than nationalism, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a big part of the troubles was this hunger strike. In 1980 and 1981, members of the IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army, who were prisoners in Northern Ireland's Mays Prison, carried out hunger strikes in an effort to regain the status of political prisoners that had been removed in 1976 by the preceding Labour government. Bobby Sands began the 1981 strike, saying that he would fast until death unless prison inmates won concessions over their living conditions. Thatcher refused to countenance a return to political status for the prisoners, having declared, quote, crime is crime is crime. It is not political. Nevertheless, the British government privately contacted Republican leaders in a bid to bring the hunger strikes to an end. After the deaths of Sands and nine others, the strike ended. Some rights were restored to paramilitary prisoners, but not official recognition of political status. Violence in Northern Ireland escalated significantly during the hunger strikes. Yeah, I mean, that's a recurring theme that we see with Thatcher is that she's just going to stick to her guns no matter what, right or wrong. She's going to stick to her principles no matter how pig-headed they may be. You really can't get her to budge. Uh, So Jerry Adams, who acted as the public face of the IRA for much of its three-decade guerrilla war against British rule in Northern Ireland, said in 1998 that Margaret Thatcher caused, quote, great suffering in Ireland, and her policies there ultimately failed and delayed the achievement of peace. Thatcher's uncompromising policies led her to become a figure of hate for nationalists in Northern Ireland. Supporters say her hard line was inevitable after Irish Republican militants killed close Thatcher ally Airy Neve in a 1979 car bomb attack and the IRA came close to killing her in the Brighton Hotel bombing. This was an IRA assassination attempt against the top tier of the British government that occurred on October 12, 1984 at the Grand Brighton Hotel. A long delay time bomb was planted in the hotel by IRA member Patrick McGee with the purpose of killing Thatcher and her cabinet who were staying at the hotel for the Conservative Party conference. Although Thatcher narrowly escaped the blast, five people connected with the Conservative Party were killed, including a sitting Conservative MP, and 31 were injured. Afterwards, the IRA released a statement, quote, Mrs. Thatcher will now realize that Britain cannot occupy our country and torture our prisoners and shoot our people in their own streets and get away with it. Today, we were unlucky. But remember, we only have to be lucky once. You will have to be lucky always. Give Ireland peace and there will be no more war. Dude, that's so badass. What and I think quote. <laughs> that is like one of the most famous quotes is like, you know, we only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky every time. I see that all over. And that's like mostly how I know the IRA is from that quote, because that is just gold right there, man. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. Not that we advocate political violence here. We would never, we would never advocate such a thing. Only in Minecraft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, this is more of a quote from Jerry Adams again. Her espousal of old draconian militaristic policies prolonged the war and caused great suffering. 
Adam said in a statement, she embraced censorship, collusion, and the killing of citizens by covert operations and refused to recognize the rights of citizens to vote for parties of their choice. Another interesting thing here is that uh, Thatcher also introduced a broadcasting ban that forced British broadcasters to dub Jerry Adams' voice. This is, this is actually really funny. So from October 1988 to September 1994, the British government banned broadcasts of the voices of representatives from Sinn Féin and several Irish Republican and Loyalist groups on television and radio in the United Kingdom. The restrictions announced by the Home Secretary Douglas Hurd in October 1988 covered 11 organizations based in Northern Ireland. The ban followed a heightened period of violence in the course of the Troubles and reflected the UK government's belief in a need to prevent Sinn Féin from using the media for political advantage. Broadcasters quickly found ways around the ban, chiefly by using actors to dub the voice of banned speakers. The restrictions caused difficulties for British journalists who spoke out against censorship imposed by various other countries, such as Iraq and India. The Republic of Ireland had its own similar legislation that banned anyone with links to paramilitary groups from the airwaves. This added pressure on the British government to abandon this policy, and UK Prime Minister John Major lifted the broadcast ban in September 1994. My question, if you don't mind real quick here, is like, yeah, go okay, it. when they dubbed them, is it like anime of like, you know, they're saying the same shit, it's just a different voice? What the fuck? Why? Why? Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it was. Like you Fucking they made a law that you could not have these guys' voices on the air on TV or radio. And so they would just get actors to read the same statements that these guys were saying, and they would just totally skirt the law that way. It's hilarious. My God, did they think the fucking, like, just the vocalization alone in these people's voice, like Gary Adams, just like, damn, this is brain rot. This guy. Yeah, I actually don't know what his voice sounds like, but maybe it's just so magic that it just hypnotizes people into doing car bombings and shit. Jesus Christ. Dude's got a fucking voice like Pharrell Williams. Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> dude. Another uh, little fun fact, too, is uh, Muammar Gaddafi actually helped fund the IRA on multiple occasions for, I don't think I have the exact quote here, but more or less he was pissed at Reagan and the Western world in general for bombing Tripoli and killing one of his sons. And Margaret Thatcher allowed Reagan to store U.S. munitions and planes in the U.K. for that purpose. As if I needed more reason to like Gaddafi. Yeah, exactly. He was pretty hot before he went into the whole like, <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, like dictator slump shit. Yeah, he was pretty, pretty good looking, dude. I, the dictator my, slump. Yeah, <laughs> like you know what I mean. Like the way they fucking you're perceived. Like, I the do. Borat, the Borat film is is horrible. God damn. Okay, go on. I need to stop thinking. About <laughs> shit. I'm gonna wrap up the troubles here. Obviously, like I said, we we can't get to all of it. So. Overall, more than 3,500 people were killed in the Troubles, of whom 52% were civilians, 32% were members of the British security forces, and 16% were members of paramilitary groups. Republican paramilitaries were responsible for some 60% of the deaths, loyalists 30%, and security forces 10%. There has been sporadic violence ever since the Good Friday Agreement. The Anglo-Irish Agreement, signed in November 1985, confirmed that Northern Ireland would remain independent of the Republic as long as that was the will of the majority in the North. But it also gave the Republic a say in the running of the province for the first time. The agreement also stated that power could not be devolved back to Northern Ireland unless it enshrined the principle of power sharing. The reaction was diverse. Sinn Féin and the Republic's opposition party, Fianna Fáil, condemned the agreement for acknowledging that Britain had a legitimate role in Northern Ireland. Center-ground nationalists like the SDLP welcomed what they saw as a new and constructive development, and unionist opposition was uniformly horrified, believing that the first steps had been taken towards abandoning the providence to United Ireland. Huge demonstrations, strikes, and marches were held, and all 15 unionist Westminster MPs resigned their seats. I just still can't get over that out of 3,500 people who were killed, 52% were civilians. Yeah. And that is an absolutely egregious statistic. It's really disturbing. Yeah, it's like they're stormtroopers or some shit, dude. Mm-hmm. Fuck, just can't hit shit. <laughs> well, I would say um, 
you know, how we tend to tie these things back to current events, that seems like if we were to see this uh, 1776 revolution again, like these guys on the right are, you know, circle jerking about, I think that's kind of how it would mm-hmm. play out. Because it's not going to be mostly the military involved. Like it's going to be random lone wolf attacks and like domestic terrorist events, basically. And the people who are going to be the victims of that are going to be civilians. All right. So we actually got through most of the material that I had a lot quicker than I expected. I do have a bit about Mark Thatcher that I skipped over, but we can do that as well. But I do have just a little bit about Thatcher's death and her legacy from the Irish Times. There has been much talk of Thatcher's death in a tone that is mistakenly triumphant and mocking. Some of this has been distinctly gendered with graphics and slogans such as Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead, making the rounds on social media. While it is understandable that people suffering poverty and stigma as a direct consequence of Thatcher's flawed policy should feel relieved at her departure from this world, it is unclear why her death should present a triumph. Triumph can only be claimed when one has actually done something to claim victory, yet Thatcher died of natural causes, and not at the hands of some heroic defender of the people she subjugated. And yet, it is this casting of her in a role of Bond villain that feeds into the present triumphalism as her death is viewed as the ultimate victory of good over evil, of the oppressed over the oppressor. Thatcher was, of course, superb in her role, snatching milk from children, closing shady arms deals, eradicating entire industries, crushing unions, further enriching the rich, labeling anti-colonialist and anti-apartheid movements, quote, terrorists, and waging unnecessary but politically expedient war, and allying herself with some of the worst dictators. However, by reducing her to a pantomime villain, we remain closed off from what the philosopher Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. That is, evil that is systemic, carried out not necessarily by fanatical individuals, but by followers of a certain ideology in a routine manner. I think that touches on something that is really important, and it's part of why I'm very happy that we've spent so much time talking about this period, you know, in terms of global dynamics and everything. It's true, the public perception is so fickle, and it goes away so quickly. You know, everyone that was an adult during Thatcher and Reagan's time is, you know, a lot of them are still around. And they're not able to draw these lines between those ideological shifts and those events into what we're currently dealing with today. And I really do think that it's super important to see it. Politics can take, you know, a generation to unfold, two generations to unfold. And I think that that is part of the crux of why it's so difficult to change things for the better is because unless you can see it and pay attention to it through the right eyes and through the right amount of effort, you're not going to actually manifest anything. And the rut that we see ourselves in where we have these people that are planning to gather in D.C. in some paramilitary half-assed fashion, you know, these people, though they are my enemy. I also, on some level, this is going to sound really fucked, but I feel bad for them. They don't understand a goddamn thing about their world. Yeah. And it's, it's turned them into monstrous individuals. And to an extent, yes, they are victims, which is very unfortunate. And it's because of what I'm saying. They, they don't either have the time or the educational resources or whatever the hell, maybe just not even the effort or desire to see this lineage. I'm really glad we've spent so long talking about it because it's really fucking important. No, I don't think what you said is fucked up at all. I think that having humanity for people like that, as far as their followers and stuff, is still important to a large extent. I cringe when I say it, but I do believe it. I cringe when someone says, like, you know, fuck all troops, because, like, okay, yeah, sure, the, the jobs that they do and stuff like that, I get what you mean, right? Like, fuck the system, ultimately. But if you're actually meaning, like, you know, fuck individual military officers or whatever... Mm-hmm. Yes, there are certainly bad ones, but the mass majority of that conglomerate is made up of people who unwillingly and unknowingly get into the system, as we prior mentioned. You know, like, oh, I don't have a way to go to college, so here's basically the best thing I can do to get material means to provide for myself. Yeah, going back to you were saying, Jaron, about people who were alive and were adults and are old enough to have remembered 
what it was like living under Thatcher and Reagan. I'm going to make Cosper cringe like crazy here, but that should be the nail in the coffin for the neoliberal version of Hegelianism, that ideas are what is driving human history and the course of human development. The idea that all we're doing is now arguing things in the marketplace of ideas, and that is actually like the best ideas are going to win over. When in reality, like we've seen the failure of neoliberalism, we've seen the failure of Thatcherism and Reaganism, and we're still going on that course. And what it really comes down to is material conditions. And the material conditions are that the wealthy are in charge. They are the ones currently driving all economic and political development right now. And even though it's not going well for most people, we're still going on that course. Even if it may drive humanity to extinction, we're still going to do it because they are profiting from it. And we just don't really have a say in the matter. My counter to that, because I have to as a Hegelian, is if the the material conditions are such a way, why do people perceive it as such another different thing? Because the ideals and ideology that is implanted within neoliberalism to get you to look at it and say it's working for me, I think at least to a large extent, that's a very naive cover of it. But I think to yeah, but isn't that just a material condition of media, like manufacturing consent, as Noam Chomsky would say? To a large extent, absolutely. I I will go on about that later. All right. I mean, go on about it now. I, I I've gotten through all my material. So if you want to uh, go on a little rant, I actually am going to uh, run to the bathroom real quick, aka oh, yeah. the tree outside my car. We can go ahead and <laughs> jump into fuck. <laughs> <laughs> if y'all want, we can go ahead and jump into my little thing on neoliberalism about it. it. I, I dropped it on the uh, pod mods. If y'all want to go into it, it's on a Google Doc. We can all be going together. Yeah, I got it pulled up. I was really excited when you said that you're going to do this. Hell yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I read David Harvey's book. I also read Democracy and Other Neoliberal Fantasies, which was pretty fucking good. I have so, read that before. That sounds like something I'd enjoy, though. It is really good. So I think when we start talking about neoliberalism, I think the most important thing to understand about it is it's just fucking capitalism at the end of the day. You know, it's a system constantly in crisis, flailing its arms amongst the sea to maintain profitability. And this is the way that it's evolved into getting that way. And the theory comes from uh, Mount Perlian Society, which was composed, like it was this meeting of individuals who are theoretical economists and other types of bullshit like that and how to maintain power in certain systems. It was composed of Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, Karl Popper, among many of others. Mm-hmm. So the usual suspects, the usual fucking suspects is always motherfuckers like Friedman saying like, OK, this is cool. But how much more money can I get in my pocket? Similar to Ayn Rand of like, you know, fuck the individual type shit. I care about <laughs> Chicago boys. This yep. is precisely. Yes, that was touched on heavily throughout that book. Yeah. Yeah, keep in mind that those are the people who helped Pinochet. Like it literally was the Chicago boys who studied under Milton Friedman and then went and helped Pinochet conduct his coup and just murder communists. Yes, this is crucially important to understand here is that the theoretical framework that these motherfuckers are laying down in the Mount Perlin society is what basically we see implemented through not only Chile, but Argentina by force and then democratically in Britain and America through Reagan and Thatcher. So the thing that precedented neoliberalism was what we call Keynesian economics or embedded liberalism. It came after the Second World War. It was basically this idea that you should focus on things like welfare states, education and full employment, whatever extent of that you may wish under a capitalist fucking system. Uh, But Keynesian economics started to fall in on itself in the late 60s due to high unemployment, inflation, which resulted in stagflation and many of other things, right? So there was a call amongst millions of people around the world of saying this is fucking up. We're going into a global recession, basically, as we pointed towards earlier. How the hell are we going to get out of this? What's the next step? We look around the world, we can see some people lean more into the socialist or Marxist ideologies, 
in Sweden, you see people lean more towards a social democratic welfare state being bolstered up through education and so on. But in other nations like Chile, Argentina, and also America and Britain, you see the slashing of these former Keynesian economics is in the welfare states, education, and the attempt to gain full employment, saying, fuck that. Now, basically, we're just going to get profits. We don't care what the fuck it costs anymore. So with that being set up about how neoliberalism started, kind of, let's talk about how it works. So one of the main theoretical frameworks for neoliberalism is a strong, heavily strong importance on strong private property rights. The -hmm. rule of law, free markets and free trade being paramount as basically the gates to freedom, saying that anything that operates outside of these things, such as a state planned economy or so on, is just fucking dictatorship, authoritarianism and the horrible of horribles, the ultimate sin, really. Yeah, this is just like the Ten Commandments of neoliberalism, like property rights over everything else. And that's somehow freedom. Precisely. And it, go ahead, Jen. Oh, I was just going to add to your point, And it's referencing back to, uh, I think we mentioned John Locke talking about life, liberty and property. There's a really interesting commentary by um, Peter Kropotkin on this, one of my favorite anarchist writers, where it's like, OK, if you're born, obviously you have life. If you are born, then conceptually, obviously, you should have liberty. But with property, that's an interesting one because property requires capital to obtain. So in a sense, it doesn't fit into the other categories of life and liberty. Property is something that you only acquire through a degree of social privilege. So there's definitely something to be mentioned there. Oh, absolutely. If you want to go on about that, I'd love to hear it. Well, I mean, in terms of Kropotkin, anarchists tend to go several different ways in terms of private property. And of course, I'm not talking about personal property. I'm talking about private property. There's a very mm-hmm. significant difference, um, meaning that, you know, your house, your toothbrush, your toaster, those are, that's personal property. Yeah. Private property is the means of production, the means of making shit. And with Kropotkin, the thing about neoliberals and capitalists in particular, is they want to conflate these terms on purpose. They want to make you think that people are going to come after your toothbrush, if you see Mm -hmm. what I'm saying here. Um, When that's not the case at all, in order to have property, and by property, I mean the means of production, you have to have capital. And capital is not something that you are given upon birth. It's not something that we can equate to liberty necessarily, because liberty is kind of a ubiquitous term. So in the eyes of the anarchists, we have to look at someone like John Locke, who is widely heralded as like a significant voice in this system and say, okay, there's life, there's liberty, and then there isn't property, there's privilege. And that's completely different than the other two aforementioned things. Mm -hmm. Just the thing I would like to add on to that is with that, you know, it requires capital to do such. We have to realize that capital is very much so something that you can mass accumulate which ultimately leads to less and less people being able to get a share of something. And that's what one of the fears I'm going to touch on later on is the privatization of land being really something we should look out for. I'll just say it like that, especially when neoliberalism considers businesses as individuals. So mm-hmm. excellent uh, point. back on to this, though, with this false idea that if it's not free market or so on, it's authoritarian and bullshit. It implements the state to have a monopoly on violence. It also enforces strict individualism, but only in the sense at which you can act in accordance to the rule of law that they've set out. That individualism does not give you the freedom to collectivize yourself in groups such as unions or say that we want a collective run state. You're not individually free enough to do that within a neoliberal ideology. And the thing that we must ask about this is how 
kind of these things came to rise, not only through people like Milton Friedman and Karl Popper, but they, we also have to notice the implementation of think tanks, corporations funding these ideas and so on are mm-hmm. crucial in understanding the development of how these came to rise. And with that, we can interpret neoliberalization as either a utopian project to reorganize international capitalism or and which I think is the correct assessment to recognize it as a political project to reestablish the conditions of capital accumulation and to restore power to the economic elites within the system at a time to where it was in crisis and a decision had to be made of changing the process. And it became changing it in a way that had the false disguise of freedom to the individual and having the sleight of hand to classify business and corporations as individuals in themselves, allowing them to run rampant all over the actual individuals and working class of the nation. And we see that sleight of hand prominent within someone like Ronald Reagan. And for example, brilliant when you think about it. Yeah, it really is. Actually, it's, you know, it's God. For an example of what I'm talking about, of this reestablishment of the powers of economic elites, we can look at the ASEC and the CPS data on the growing wealth disparity within not only the U.S., but countries around the world. These cuts on estate taxes, but never cuts on salary or wage taxes, only furthers the drive of these people to accumulate wealth more. And for definition, estate tax is a tax on wealth saying that your tax on like the wealth you already own, all of your assets, these are getting slashed during the era of neoliberalization because, you know, you worked for what you earned or whatever, right? It really is like diabolical. They are kind of like these evil madmen, like geniuses. And it's like, it really is smart in a way to get people to root for their own domination by getting them to root against their own class interests, by thinking that they align with billionaires, by couching it all in this rhetoric of freedom. And that's why you get these people who are saying all these things like we shouldn't tax rich people, even though they will never be rich. Because it falls into that line of the temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Like these people think, like I literally had conversations with people who were voting for Trump and they were saying like, oh, Biden's going to tax people. I'm like, do you really think you're going to make $400,000? And they're like, I might. I I don't know, but I might. Like they really believe that shit. Also for the record, just sleight of hand moving into the the modern era, just since you mentioned Trump, I'm going to throw this out there. Mm-hmm. But the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So yeah, he limited taxes for us now. But the caveat to that bill is that starting in 2021, he's going to hike taxes for everyone that makes under 70K a year for a fucking decade. Yeah. And I think that not only was that to serve the system in place, but it was an insurance policy that when he didn't get reelected, because this son of a bitch knew that he wouldn't, yeah. that when taxes inevitably go up for people under Biden, they're going to be like, oh, look at the Democrats taxing everybody. Uh-huh. And it's like, no, your mango ass Mussolini motherfucker over here. He's the one that did it. He did that. I am not defending Biden. Fuck that dude too. But like at least get the blame right. Yeah. And I'm sure they will totally, they will totally listen to that message when we try to explain that in another year or so when those taxes get hiked up (laughs) and they see that return on their paychecks, you know, I'm sure they will totally listen to reason. Even when you show it to them in writing that Trump wrote this bill and put it in place, I can already see it happening, man. Like they're going to deny it. They're going to say that it's like some kind of deep state conspiracy where they forged Trump's signature and they edited the documents to make it look like Trump did it. You can already see Dude, this is exactly what Cosper's saying, though, is like the cognitive dissonance implied in this system is precisely why they would rather pawn it off on some like crazy deep state scheme instead of looking at the system and going like, yo, this whole thing is messed up. It's part of what he's saying here. And I think that that's pretty telling. No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to touch on that. But the manufactured consent that is required to keep the system in place is very fragile, is all I'm going to say, especially when you have, well, not very fragile. I'll get on that. 
But moving forward, I would just like to say those conversations are probably going to sound a lot like this. You know what, brother? That shit didn't come from fucking Breitbart. I don't want to hear it. You can't <laughs> prove that shit to me. Come on. But by then um, it'll be Newsmax. It'll be OAN. Like, because uh, you know what those outlets are going to say. Those outlets are not going to blame Trump for the tax hike. They're going to be the ones saying that it's because of Biden. And I don't know. I'm trying to think of how they're going to do it. Like, how are they going to frame it? Because like I said, it's in writing. Like we could, we should be able to pull up the documents and show them that Trump <laughs> instituted his tax hike. But, yeah, but it's dude, not going you can to pull matter. up documents to say the CIA assassinated, I don't know, everybody and no one cares. Yeah, there's still people that are like, where's Obama's birth certificate? And it's like, it's fucking oh online. God. And they're like, oh, that's what not real. Mean, what do you mean? Still haven't seen it, brother. What are you talking about? Have you seen it in person? <laughs> Have you? you gotta, nah, man, you got to print it out, put it on the hood of their F-150. God, you're lowballing on the 150, dog. That motherfuckers drives 450s, at least. <laughs> With like 20-inch lifts, dog. And that's the economy? No, no. <laughs> To go on further down the line, I wrote my own little section on contradictions within the neoliberal theory in itself. So no, I can't wait. If you allow me to indulge myself, I'm going to close. Yeah, sorry, I'll stop uh, interrupting you. No, 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 no. Y'all are fine. I love the, the dialogue, truly. But I'm going to start this with a quote from Gramsci, who is a renowned Italian Marxist who people should know. I'll just put it like that. Check him out if you haven't. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Pete Buttigieg's dad was a Gramsci scholar. To show you how far the apple the fell from fuck? the tree, dude. Whoa, that really? Fucking the rat boy turned into what? God, dude, he had such a good I know, setup. dude. It's okay. really disappointing. All right. Gramsci once said, capitalism sustained itself not only through political motivated violence and coercion, but also through ideology. And this gets on basically the point that we're talking about primarily here. That within neoliberalism, there's this false appeal to freedom, very common within the form of Reagan, of individual freedom being a disguise for corporate domination, ultimately a benefit for those who are already well off. This individual freedom in the form of, you know, we should have estate taxes cut, we should cut taxes everywhere to promote more individual freedom, which is really just jargon for marketplace freedom. And a problem that arises within marketplace freedom is when you have a free market, the inevitable outcome is going to be monopolies because there are going to be some who do it better. There are going to be people who rise up and then make climbing that marketplace just inevitably unrealistic or at the best you can result to what is now the American dream, which is starting your business, doing well and becoming big enough to be bought off by fucking Walmart or somebody. That's <laughs> really the American dream at this point. Yeah. But with that, the next contradiction becomes, you know, how do we even interpret that monopoly? Because it leads to about four or five companies controlling the sector of whatever fucking marketplace it is, really. And the common counter to that is, we know, it maximizes efficiency to have the best doing what they do or whatever bullshit you want to spew off that. And we can see the distinct outcome of how now we're living in what neoliberalism produces. You go and get your fucking internet. How many providers do you have to choose from? About four or five. Get fucking Verizon, you get AT&T, Comcast, what have you. That's about it. There isn't really anybody else because of this. And the dealing with this with neoliberalism is contradictory because if you try to break up those monopolies, you're being state interventionalist is what it's called, which is a big no-no on freedoms, right? Yeah. So another thing about neoliberalism is that, especially in modernity, is that it's not even a fucking ideology. A lot of these people, whether they be liberal, American liberal or American conservative, think that they just look at the facts and interpret them as they are. You know, this comes back down to Reagan's common sense. And, you know, it leads to shit that ends up like on your fucking wall saying, you know, this house that believes in science. 
when really you're not even like it, that's what's so dangerous about this it's like okay yeah you have this ideology but there's not even a recognition that there is something formulating what facts are important to you what you see is given to you by those who want you to see it to a large extent right this is the manufacturing consent we're talking about of this reinforcement of like okay if it's not a free marketplace free trade if there isn't like these quote-unquote, individual freedoms and common sense, you can't even think about that because it's not only communism or socialism. It innately results into, this is just authoritarianism. Cosper, I love the point you made about the contradiction of what constitutes a free market. And it relates back to that stupid Thatcher quote about, you know, a society is not anything, more or less. If you look at like availability of goods, right? We all go to grocery stores. We all go to, well, hopefully not Walmart, but you see what I'm saying? We all get our shit from communal places, whether or not they're private or public. Mm -hmm. So in essence, if you want to classify society as that, fine, but you're completely right. Is there all for free market? But then at a certain point, if there is the monopolization of a market, it is no longer free. It may not be state-owned, but it's still monopolized. And if the fear from the conservative side is fear of state monopoly, what in the fuck is the difference, whether it's the state or Bezos or the Walton family? Yeah, precisely on the point here. And I will get to that at the where it's headed section of this, because I think what I've at least done an analysis on is rather interesting to what that leads on is like, here we go. But the second area of contradiction is how to handle market failures within a neoliberal ideology. And this typically arises, these market failures, when firms or individuals fail to pay back full costs attributable to them by shedding liabilities outside of the market. And the classic case of this becomes pollution, right? You can't pay the full cost of like actually disposing of this thing. So you dump these fucking toxic waste fumes or what have you into environmental waste zones. And the neoliberal solution to this, fucking just strap in, it becomes fucking pollution credits. Yeah. You can buy the right to pollute. <laughs> you can buy the right to go fuck up somebody's entire generational line and like drive down birth rates in certain areas when you look at horribly affected environmental waste zones. That's Teflon the free credits. market at work. Precisely Teflon credits. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> prime example of this. Yeats into apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> But another contradiction is this, like we touched on earlier, this presumption that everyone's working from the same grounds on information and power, and the free market will play out in order to prop up those who work the hardest, have the best ideas, and so on, when there is no even recognition that we haven't had this starting place ever, and not my lifetime, not your lifetime, not your granddad's. No, it isn't traceable back in this market. Every section of the economy, there is an advantage and a disadvantage. And like I said earlier, you know, okay, you want to go compete against Google. Good luck creating the algorithm at which they've already developed, have all the informational power to keep developing and keep striving forward and keep ahead of the curve. That is literally an example of pure ideology. This buy-in of saying, you know what, I believe that the free market is free as such. Even if I see all of this fucking evidence, otherwise I'm not putting the glasses on. Fuck that. Hey, you bring up a good point that like there never was any kind of starting point. I actually heard something similar a while back from a documentary that was actually about 3D printing. And in it, they had this guy, Cody Wilson. He's a libertarian and like a good libertarian, he got himself involved in a uh, like some kind of scandal with an underage girl. And <laughs> which also was convenient because he was what he was doing was his cause was 3D printing guns. 
And he was putting out what do you call them, the CAD files to 3D print weapons. And he was even selling a 3D printer that was especially for 3D printing guns. At the time, he said in this documentary, he was like big into Foucault. And he was like, you know, there was never a time when everyone just rose up and created the society that we're living in. We never all sat down and agreed to this is how the world is going to be and set things into motion this way. This all just evolved from feudalism. Everything else he said was complete shit, but that was a good point that he made. No, yeah, that's right on. But I, I really, I do agree with you. I think that a key point in like libertarian theory, at least from that which I've read, is pedophilia. You know, you have to have the right to do something like that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting the nail in the coffin of libertarianism. <laughs> but the last thing I have to say about these contradictions is there's a fetishized belief that technology will eventually solve everything. You know, okay, we have this pollution. We're going to have advanced technology enough to be able to, I don't know, fucking eat the pollution. Yeah, it's just basically, <laughs> I, that one's really hard to get into because it's like, when? Yeah. Fucking yeah, when? when? Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Like, because that's always the answer that you hear of like, you know, we're experiencing global warming. There's all of these like horrible things going on around the world. Australia's on fire. It's getting so hot in Australia that bats are literally boiling above Sydney and just dropping down by the thousands and shit. Jesus. But no, chill out. Stop panicking, liberal man. We're going to solve it. If you just give enough money to Elon, if you cut his taxes enough, motherfuckers going to, it'll come back to you. Don't worry. Yeah. For the listeners, Jaron was making the jerk off motion to that idea because, you know, and you're right to do so. You absolutely should because it is a circle (laughs) jerk. It is just a complete circle jerk. So, oh, you're doing the Trump dance now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that was. It's odd how similar the Trump dance is to jerking off two dudes. Like at the same time. All right, so I, I think now it's time to look at how it's going for neoliberalism. If we look around, we can see the climate in utter disrepair. We can see mass extinction levels. We can see an increase in tornadoes, hurricanes, you know, climate disaster, really. We see the formation of this internet and cable oligarchy. We see the shaping and reinforcement of what is common sense and modernity through social media algorithms. Now that we've had this technological advancement where you go on YouTube, you're watching Minecraft videos when you're 13 and you get recommended like, you know, feminist SJW gets fucking assaulted and owned and destroyed by Ben Shapiro or some bullshit of like, yeah, there is a, a clear and distinct pipeline that we see through these algorithms, majoritively, if not always leading people towards the right. Yep. We see 52% of adults living with their parents. We see the most educated and also the most in-debt generation in history. We see a 30% increase in the rate of death by suicide in the United States between 2000 and 2016. So I think something we need to look around and see is like the common sense that this is just the way humanity functions and like the way we do things, you know, this is individual freedom bullshit is inevitably untrue. That Things are being triggered here that we're not meant to do. And if they are being triggered... We're triggering the wrong intents, the wrong incentives to greed, selfishness, and alienation, which is causing these suicide rates, which is causing the internet and cable providers oligarchy. We're reinforcing the things that will inevitably lead us spiraling into our own existential annihilation. Because if we don't correct these things soon, it's not like we're working in this in some bubble. There is a clock ticking here prevalent within the climate change issue, prevalent within AI and the development of such. There are things coming that this system cannot handle. And the more that we analyze the system, I think that more people would look towards it and say, yes, it needs to be reformed or thrown out the window 
onto the highway to be ran over by 14 fucking 18 wheelers at the same time until it's smashed into oblivion. I just think this is a great sort of summation to our series on this. And it touches on, you know, the philosophical implications of what exactly is freedom? Is freedom the right to die because you can't afford health insurance? Is freedom the right to not be able to find a job because the economy doesn't have room for you? Or is freedom the right to have the infrastructure to live a good life and to have time for yourself and for your family and not this rugged individualism that, quite frankly, should have been left in the past with a more primal human uh, society? The perversion of those concepts is kind of central, I think, to the past three episodes that we've spent talking about Reagan and Thatcher. Absolutely. I think the best question that we can ask to what you're saying is who is this freedom for? Ultimately, whenever we hear people saying that this is common sense, freedom for everyone is like, okay, okay, I hear you. I hear the bullshit that's coming out of your mouth, Reagan and Thatcher. But really, who is this freedom for? Mm -hmm. Are these individual freedoms not only able to be actualized through those who have the privilege and wealth necessary to gain this insurances for healthcare, the education required through an Ivy League school, what have you? Is this freedom only exists to those who have the innate privilege to actualize and grasp it in the first place? This is not a freedom for each individual. It is a facade and, like said earlier, the sleight of hand of the talking point. It is a prey on our desire to have that innate right to freedom. And that is what is diabolical of it. But I want to talk about where it's headed. China. <laughs> China. China. No, I mean, seriously, like, that is why I stand China so hard all the time. It's like, they are presenting the only alternative to this. We are in the death spiral of unregulated, just hyper-capitalism, just going down the tubes of humanity. Like, that is what we are on the path of if we don't do something. And I don't have a lot of faith of people, especially in the imperial core, to spontaneously rise up and put any kind of stops to this. I don't think China is, like, the ideal communist state. But they are the only ones presenting any kind of realistic alternative. And over the last two decades, we've seen them become a world superpower and be the only thing that could really compete with the U.S. in a militaristic way or an economic way. And I really think that is probably our last hope, as sad as that sounds, like to have China take over in the ashes of America as it burns itself to death. And we're watching it happen. Like we are watching China beat COVID while Americans are still dying in record numbers. And we get a pittance of a stimulus while, you know, China is now seeing a growth in GDP for 2020 while the U.S. is not. They're showing us the way. And it's just a matter of taking up the mantle and actually going with it or resisting until we just burn out. And then, you know, good riddance, America. I don't know. I mean, aren't we having like a 9-11 every day in COVID deaths here in America? I'm just going to say a month ago, I made a post on Instagram and I asked people to predict what they thought the numbers were going to be in COVID deaths in the U.S. by Christmas time. And my guess was 315K. We're already there. Yes. All right. To wrap my little section, if y'all would, again, where it's headed, I think that we can look around us and see is that really this call to individualization and privatization of literally everything that is prevalent through a neoliberal theory can be, in my opinion, best exemplified through the connection with the private sector in the form of SpaceX and NASA, to where these public goods that need to be done that can't be funded because they offer no quote-unquote profitability, to where the state has to intervene and do it as well. We see them doing these technological advancements in AI, which there's not a marketplace for. That's the thing that I forgot to mention that is very key and fundamental to neoliberalism is that it pushes new markets where there are none existing. It will open the doors to those themselves, if that makes sense. In the field of AI, there's no market for it right now. So it's being funded through the state. But where it's really headed is the degradation of the earth. It's fucking crumbling in on itself. We're in the spiral. 
And the thing that we touched on earlier that I'm going to expand upon is the privatization of literally everything to where everything becomes privatized. And there is no real limit to this is the scary thing to where we could get to the point to where literally the state becomes privatized, which is kind of what we're looking at to a certain extent already where the state is majoritively run through private enterprises and corporations funding these politicians and what have you to do things that are in their own interest. Mm -hmm. But it can be taken a step further indefinitely. Still with the same facade that you're electing these people, quote unquote. This Mm -hmm. is the manufactured consent part we're getting at here is the underpinning of, are you, you know, really? But like, again, what is this freedom for and who? I think the best thing that I can say to wrap this up is, okay, what did you do about it? You've talked about all this bullshit. Good for you. You've recognized it. Fuck you. I don't care. I think the best thing that we can do from here is use dialectics. Recognize all contradictions prevalent within the system. Help other people recognize these contradictions to where it can lead to a rupturing event. This is a key point in dialectics is the rupture. In this case, it would be something that is a basically an inciting incident that causes people to say, what the fuck is going on? Or at least take the fucking blinders off. I don't know. <laughs> I think definitely in terms of dialectics, this this kind of illustrates their power. And we've mentioned this before. This is it's such a sensitive subject. And that's the point is, you know, in the past, since the Reagan, since the Thatcher era, we've seen a resurgence in the relevance and need to address black rights, gay rights, trans rights, all of these different identity based rights. And those are absolutely 100 percent needed to the max, a thousand percent. But again, I'm very much in the camp of like, how do you get that rupture without class consciousness? And that is the thing that we're really missing is like, you know, I'm not saying that the intricacies of identity politics don't exist. They're different for every bit of human identity. However, you have to have both. both, Exactly. And that's part of what we're missing. The the militant Trump dumbasses that are probably going to go out on January 6th are probably in my economic bracket. Mm -hmm. They probably have more in common with me than they do with the guy that they're trying to defend. In fact, not probably, definitely. That's where we lack class consciousness. And that's why the rupture is so hard to manifest in what you guys call, I guess, the imperial core or whatever the fuck. But (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the one thing that we're missing. And that's been intentionally destabilized by blaming the single mothers, by blaming the drug dealers, by blaming people who are on the same economic fucking level as you are. Yeah, you said it last week, Jaron. And I thought about it a lot ever since when you were asking if that's intentional, if the focus on things like calling people gay and poor and communist and focusing on all these identity issues to distract people away from. And the example we used last week was um, the minor strike. Does that distract people from the real class issues that are going on? And I really think that is intentional and it has to be like the people in power know that if they get people to just align with them, it's like the divide and conquer strategy. It's really that simple. If you just get people to divide along identity lines and they never unite along class interests, then you never have anything to fear. You will always be able to maintain your position of privilege. They'll never band together. They won't. Right. Yeah. Well, and and for any event, you need thesis and antithesis to create synthesis. And if we don't have those two polarized points, then we don't manifest anything. So, you know, we, we have the thesis is there's corruption in government. Both sides agree on that. The antithesis is what's divided. And that to me is identity politics. It's the politics that split the classism in twain. And again, it's it's so tough to talk about this because these are hypercharged emotional issues that need to be addressed. 
I can't say that we should sacrifice black rights for classist rights. That's completely wrong. They have to operate together and with some semblance of mutual understanding, even though they do have their own intricacy. Yeah, I don't think that anyone on the left really wants to ignore identity politics entirely. I think even the people on the left who eschew identity politics would set it aside for after the class revolution has taken place. Like they would say something along the lines of, well, let's just take over the bourgeoisie. Let's get rid of all the elites that are in power. And then we can worry about racial divisions. We can worry about gender divisions. We can worry about all these other identities. But in reality, I think you just, you need to do both at the same time. Yep. But we're just not doing the one. Like we are definitely doing identity politics. We're just not doing class consciousness. And we haven't been for a long time. Well, and how the son of a bitch would you do both of them at the same time? In my heart of hearts, I believe it's possible somehow. But at the same time, you know, I can't, as a white man, I cannot look at somebody who is worried if the cops are going to shoot them every day that they come out of their house and say, hey, have you thought about class politics? Yeah. You know, that's why you have to do both at the same time. You can't, you can't ignore that. Like that is a huge part of it, obviously. I think that that definitely plays into this thing that Cosper put together is neoliberalism, despite the fact that it's stilted and designed to fail has this diabolical brilliance to it that it splits people the way that it does. And at the same time, it takes the reverse ideologies, the leftist ideologies, and discredits them so powerfully that even the fact that I call myself an anarchist, and you guys get it all the time too as communists, is like most people won't even hear me speak Mm -hmm. because I call myself that. Well, that's why it's funny. In meme form, it is the, uh, the bell curve where you have the really low IQ guy on the one side who said both parties are bad. And then the really high IQ guy on the other side who says both parties are bad. And it's like, they're both right, but for very different reasons. Like there are yep. some really dumb people who say both parties are bad because they just know that they have never been served by either one. They've watched them flip flop back and forth into presidential seats in their entire life. And they've never had their station improved whatsoever. But then there are people who actually study politics, who understand ideology and realize that both parties are controlled by the same elites. Liberals are the controlled opposition. They will harp on and on about identity politics. And it is, once again, just more black trans female drone pilots. But you are still dominated all the same. If I may say one more thing about it, too, is and this ties it into our whole episode. I think the dismissive nature that people have developed towards class politics is completely related to the fact that unions have been crushed and that the legacy of unions has been tarnished and that they have this stigma to them now, which you know, really manifested in the 80s on up until today. Because, you know, when we do think about unions, the first thing that people think about is socialism. They start thinking, making these uh, ridiculous sort of lines that don't even actually exist. Well, yeah, I mean, Um, it directly ties into the Cold War and Red Scare propaganda. And that is directly out of the Reagan and Thatcher era. If it weren't for the Cold War, if the wrong side hadn't won, we would have an entirely better world right now. That's really what it comes down to. Like you can look at time capsules from the Soviet Union and they ask, you know, did you guys finally get rid of all the elites? Is everyone equal? Are you guys living on the moon now? Like they had all these fantastic visions of what the future was going to look like because they had started on the path to creating a better world. And, you know, we just weren't able to hold that up for them. Yeah, I love that bit in Austin Powers when he first comes to... He's like, oh, the Cold War is over. He's like, oh, finally, those capitalist pigs will pay for their crimes. Right, comrades? (laughs) It's like, oh, no, Austin, we won. It's like, oh, yay, groovy capitalism. I forgot about that joke. To try and put a cap on all of this, 
we should just get the impression, like talking about Reagan and Thatcher, that's what we are really getting at is that they put into place this neoliberal order that we are living in. And we can see the failure of it is evident to everyone living in it right now. It's not working out for most of the people. It's working out really well for a very select few at the top. And I mean, I harp on this almost every episode now. It seems like when you have these people who are on the right and they start talking about the media being against them, they start talking about the elites being against them. And then they go in the complete wrong direction and say, oh, it's the Jews. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, those are like 30, 40 percent of the people who are in the position of power. Meanwhile, 100 percent of them are rich. How do you not see the connection there? Like, how do you not understand that it is about the bourgeoisie? It is about the people who have money and how money equates to power. And if you can't see that, I just honestly don't know where to begin with you. It's these people who align against their own class interests, they are class traders, and they think that they have more in common with billionaires than other people in their own economic station. Yeah, capital is just like the modern version of royalty now. Like back in feudalism, he had all the people that were still like pro-king and everything. But nowadays, it's just pro-billionaire. You know, I love the term uh, temporally embarrassed millionaire. Yeah. Like that's so accurate for how a lot of people operate nowadays. Just... Steinbeck was based. Defending indefensible actions by billionaires. Yep. All right. Well, I guess we can uh, we could probably wrap it up there, right? Sounds good to me. All right. Let's do the plugs then. For Cosper, we will uh, plug the DSA, dsausa.org. That's right. And we will plug your Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. For Jaron, we'll plug your website. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. You can pick up his book. My copy finally came in the mail yesterday. Starting to Hell yeah, man. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, for Ward, we'll plug your uh, Instagram. That's Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And his backup, Millennial Leftist. Check out his shit post. He's got some of the best memes out there. Uh, we will plug the Twitter, even though Sterling couldn't make it. I'll, uh, I'll throw him a bone and plug the Twitter. That's Turn Leftist Pod. Yeah, and for any other relevant links, just check out Linktree slash Turn Leftist. It's a pleasure, uh, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. See you next Great week. Pleasure. See y'all. Y'all take care. See you. Thanks, everyone.